You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Sunday, July 1st, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good afternoon. Yeah, we're recording early <laughs> because we're getting ready for our Nexus weekend. I have to, you know, we have to get two shows in the can before we go to Nexus. So we, we have to record shows a little bit early at, at, around events, as we, as um, you guys, our regular listeners, will know that we do. Did you guys see that picture of the guy from Pompeii with a mm. boulder on top of his head? No. Yes. yes. You guys didn't see it. it. Was like trending. I don't know. Maybe a month ago. Does that sound about right? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it looks like a Far Side cartoon. Yeah, you know? cartoonish. That's what. Yeah. It like me. it's like a skeleton on his back, and it looks like <laughs> his his head is 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 farther down into the ground. And there's this giant rectangular rock right where his head should be. <laughs> cause of death. Yeah, possible well, cause of death. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. It, it looks like. The boulder crushed his head, right? So yeah. that it, it, it's it's not a natural boulder; it's part of a building. So, like when the volcano was erupting and blowing everything up, somehow the stone got thrown and landed on this guy's head. Except mm-hmm. it turns turns out that that's not oh, how he died. What? That uh, they they found his head uh, oh. next somewhere near the body. You know, it wasn't. Oh my god, right. that's a horrible thing to laugh at. Sorry. They found his okay. skull. It's not too soon, Karen. It, it was okay. yeah, it's, yeah, 79 AD. <laughs> it wasn't crushed. It just, must have just fallen off at some point. But <laughs> they think well, he probably asphyxiated you know, from the ash and everything. And then the rock just must have fallen later, right where his head used to be. Yeah. But didn't actually Oh, so it's not that head. he survived a boulder falling no, on his head. No, that no, was a he post-mortem died. thing. Yeah, it was just post yeah. it probably was post-mortem and then just unrelated to his death. He did die in the volcano. He died, you know, breathing in ash. Probably. Well, that was nature making sure that he was actually dead. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that volcano really wanted this guy dead, you know. He's like, all right, he's laying there, his head fell off. I'm gonna still throw a boulder on him. Just to make sure that we got this guy. I mean, it's amazing. This picture just blew me away when I saw yeah, it. It it's did cartoon. Look like a car- blew him it away like a cartoon. Too. Yeah, talk about a blockhead. Yeah. <laughs> I, ha- I have an alternate hypothesis, and, and I, I'm, I'm calling it spontaneous human decapitation. Yeah. By yeah. which the head just suddenly comes off of a person. Nobody exactly knows why. Mm-hmm. There. I coined you know, it. So I looked it up while Steve was describing it, and I, of course I saw the picture. It is amusing and it's, it's you've never seen anything like this before you got to look it up i just looked up pompey boulder and it came right up yeah well, <laughs> the but, cool thing is that this new this new understanding of what probably really happened is secondary to something called pro, pyroclastic flow yes I, which i, I had never heard of Bob yeah, all about are, that. they are scary yeah. The whole earth moves. Here's here's seems. a superheated gas coming at you with also with boulders and trees and things also mixed in the mix. Mm-hmm. You are toast. And talk yeah. about superheated. What did it say? Was it something like 2000 degrees Fahrenheit? Did oh, yeah, I read that right? Oof. That's insanity. Yeah, you just At least died. it's a quick death. Yeah. Yeah. That, to me, that, that's one of the scariest things about your lungs about blister and explode. Eruption. Is basically yep. what happens. Huh. Yeah, that's what happens. Like it, 
when a suit when a cloud of super heated air from a volcano like moves through a village it just kills every single person in its wake it's unsurvivable yeah because you just you just burn from the inside yeah, out you can't yeah? Breathe. Like, oof. yeah you'd have to be wow. in an underground bunker to survive that yeah mm-hmm. but i'm looking at these pictures of pompeii you know we actually went there on a family vacation many many oh, many wow. years ago i've and been I, there too and cool. you know, I, ne- I never forgot seeing you know they have the figures of people that were kind of preserved in the mm-hmm. moment of death very very odd um it, you know semi unique situation where you can see people like lying down covering their face and mm-hmm. it, it's really sad even after you know this happened how many thousands of years ago was this mm-hmm. 2000 years ago 2000 2000 years ago and you could these are humans you know these people like there's children here you know it's it's really sad but they're like they look like rock people yeah yeah Yep. Except this one was an actual skeleton that they excavated. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is cool. Like, that's kind of different for Pompeii, isn't it? Yeah. We're used to seeing these, like, kind of, they almost look like rock mummies. Yeah, definitely. Um, but they, I saw a picture of them, I guess they were um, <laughs> revealing the skull of one of these preserved people. I don't know if they're, how, you know, I don't know if it's, weren't these hollow? These were, like, things that they filled with. They cast? Yes, that's what, yeah. what Kara's talking about. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the, the looks like a rock person. It's what it was a cast, mm-hmm. like a, you know the, the the void left by the person that was in it. The bones are still there, actually. But then they fit, oh cool. But there's like there's their body shape is preserved in the solidified ash. Yeah, yeah, remarkable. Yeah, that's a really neat phenomenon. It's like bog bodies. There's all these really amazing phenomena all over the world of different ways that that remains have been preserved and you can learn so much from all these different techniques i guess that nature uses Mm -hmm. yeah so for our patrons we will be having a ton of premium content from nexus this year you know don't forget nexus is two weeks out and our patrons are going to get some live streams from nexus we'll have a behind the curtain view of the green room which is where all the speakers hang out and we have a lot of fun conversations with uh, people that we haven't had a chance to see there's a whole group of people that we only get to see at conferences and I thought it would be fun just to leave the camera on and, and be pushing a lot of this content to our patrons. We'll definitely be interviewing um, our speakers for the main podcast, but we're also going to have some uncut stuff that we'll be giving our, our, we'll be giving our patrons as premium content. You're also going to get pictures and, and other types of video from the conference. Like we will be recording our workshops, and we're going to give our, uh, our patrons first access to those as we put them oh, up. Oh, that's so great. Yep. So many people have been asking about that. Yeah, I know. And Kara, we worked out the details and now we can do it, which was great because our our patrons were giving us feedback and mm-hmm. we responded to it and I worked it out this year so we can do it. And other great news is that uh, Bill Nye confirmed that he's coming to Nexus again. That's and awesome. of course, I will have my annual Try to Sit on Bill's Lap event. <laughs> oh yeah! Come on, Jay. You you sat on his lap last time we hung out. I know I did, but I got a, <laughs> so the, weird, the dream lives on, Bob. I got a dream, you know. I love Bill. <laughs> now, Bill, we actually Let's got to know Bill pretty again. well from doing um, a couple of our skeptical extravaganza shows with him. Um, we we had a blast with him the time yeah. that we got to do um, that. He's all he's in. So he's just totally whatever. Like, he doesn't hold back. Anything. One year we're like, oh, Bill, you know, we're doing these videos. We want to do a video of me and Jay playing D&D with you and where you end up beating up Jay. And he's like, yeah, great. That's fantastic. Let's do it. He said, what's D&D? <laughs> and he did. Yeah. We all pretty much improv it. But Bill, Bill did this bit where um, – He I went, went feet up. <laughs> 
Yeah, I pretended to punch him because he was the GM and I was the angry D&D player. So when he threw, threw himself back on the floor, he threw his feet up in the air. And then he says in the, in the, in the uh, outtake, he goes, you always got to throw your feet up. That's the comedic value of throwing yourself on the floor. And That's he was right. right. He was totally right about it. Yeah. I have a very – what is that? I have a, a very distinct memory of a photo from an extravaganza that we did with Bill where we're all like – Twistered on the floor. Yes, yeah, yeah, Incredibly precarious, and I don't even know what we were doing. Those, that we was were, the movie tableaus. Yeah, that right. no, that was freeze frame. That's where we freeze have frame. To, yeah. We have to take a snapshot. <laughs> what the goal is to get the person that that's looking at the snapshot to say what movie is this from oh or my like, gosh it was Shawshank Redemption yes, and we were making the sewer line we were making the tunnel it was so clear and obvious what the hell you were doing you know it was, was it? Yeah. so well done Bob, Bob couldn't guess it Oh my no, god! Yeah, that was, and he kept dropping like he would be like, I don't know if he's going to get redemption on this one. Yeah, right. I was I was so gone. Good Meanwhile, time. you guys did 2001: A Space Odyssey for me, and I guessed it in half a second. Mm-hmm. It that was, was the year prior. Yep. Yeah, that was good. That's a good. George came up with that bit. That's a good bit. That's so fun. Yeah. So if you want to see. <laughs> Guys, if you want to see any of this premium content and all the fun stuff we're going to be putting up there for our patrons, you could become a patron yourself. You can go to patreon.com forward slash skeptics guide. And if you want to see our next extravaganza, then you got to go to QED in Manchester in October. Manchester. This October. <laughs> or Rocktober. 20, 2018. <laughs> yeah. 17 Octobers from now. Planet okay. Earth. Planet Earth, yeah. The, uh, the local group. All right, Steve. Wouldn't that be a great name for a band? The The local local group. group? Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I like it. Like a double entendre. That's right. Yeah, it has two meanings, but it's not sexy. (laughs) Don't double entendres have to be sexy? Do they? I thought the second meaning was supposed to be like dirty. Oh, I don't know if that's kind of leaning that way too. Yeah, I don't know if that's in the definition or if that's just the way that they've mostly gone. But maybe it's one of those things where it's like two different meanings, one of which is often dirty. You are you are correct. A word or phrase open to two interpretations, one of which is usually risque or indecent. Well, what's <laughs> the one with the two interpretations that one's not risque? I don't know. Oh, gosh. I mean, because the truth <laughs> is that's you're right. That does translate from it just being double entendre, two meanings, right? Yes. Right. Right. But then, yeah, most people don't. All right. Kara. Uh, yes. What's the word? Ooh, the word this week was recommended by Miklos Bolza from Sydney. And Miklos said, I'm busy doing some research for a blog article on graphene field effect transistors. Whoa, <laughs> nice. Cool. And I came across the word adsorption. You guys know this word? Adsorption? Yes. With a D? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Huh. Adsorption. He said at first I thought it was a typo. But <laughs> yeah, right? I would have like, thought like a typo. that. Yeah. I found out it was, in fact, its own word. And recently, because we covered erupt versus erupt, you remember with the E versus the I, I thought this was another good example. So yeah, I dug deep into this one. And it does appear to have all been kind of built out of the word absorption, which we're all pretty familiar with. That's A-B-S-O-R-P-T-I-O-N. But adsorption occurs when a very thin layer of molecules, be it solids, liquids, or gases, stick to the surface of generally solid objects, but sometimes liquids. And they actually, by definition, don't penetrate the surface. So you end up with this relatively high accumulation of, um, of these molecules at the interface. 
a somewhat synonymous phrase that I've come across a few times when I was researching this is surface assimilation. Ooh, so for like example, it. yeah, yeah. Hmm. For example, activated charcoal works this way. It absorbs gases. They kind of stick to the surface, but they don't go into the charcoal. So you could say, um, I love this. I saw this on one of the definition sites. Adsorption results in a film of the adsorbate on the surface of the adsorbent. Okay. These are all different forms of that term. Um, <laughs> You may also hear the term sometimes refer to a similar a similar phenomenon in um, in genetics or virology, in which a subject adheres to an organic po- particle in a solution. Like if um, there are virus particles in a like in a liquid, and they all stick to the surface of a cell, that's also um, referred to as adsorption. And in addition, I found up another usage, was, which is an adsorption complex, and that is made up of various materials in soil, like clay and something called humus, which I'm going to add to my list. It's humus. spelled like hummus, but yeah. with only one M. <laughs> and that oh. – um, <laughs> Yeah. And so this is when various materials like clay and humus and sometimes other particles are in this complex and those particles are capable of adsorbing ions and molecules. So that would be the adsorption complex. I looked it up. This is one of those fun words where we know exactly who first invented it. Um, so it was coined by a German physicist in 1881. His name is Heinrich Kaiser or Kaiser, um, but it's spelled K-A-Y-S-E-R, not K-A-I. So maybe mm. that's Kaiser still. Kaiser? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure in, in German, but maybe we'll get somebody writing in to tell us. Um, he was really famous for his work in spectroscopy and he actually developed the word, coined the word in opposition to absorption. So absorption had been a word for a long time. He actually switched it over to adsorption to actually specify that these things are not being absorbed, but they are um, collecting on the surface. If we actually look at the early etymology of absorb, that comes from the Latin sorbere, which means to suck. So this is the opposite of sucking. And of course, we use this word in English, and it's a direct borrowing of the German word of the exact same spelling and the exact same meaning. It's a good one, I think. Yeah. And so and ab and ad, you know, basically ab is a way, like abdicate the throne, mm-hmm. and ad is to, like advantage, to your advantage. So, mm-hmm. and we, we have to, that, that, there's a lot of ab and ad in medical terms, so you have to keep that straight. Like the abductors and adductors muscles, mm-hmm. the adductors yeah, bring your legs together, the abductors take your legs away. Which many people know well from the exercise machines. Yeah, right. Where you like butterfly your legs. Yeah, exactly. But the, but it, the, the frustration is like if you're saying abductor or adductor, they sound very similar. It's very easy mm-hmm. to mistake them, which we don't like in medicine. We don't, we don't like misunderstanding one word for another. So a lot of people say adductors and abductors. You know, just, sure, yeah, that makes much more sense. Which sounds silly, but I mean, it just keeps you from misunderstanding the, which word you're referring to. Which is probably why. Do you remember early on when we did What's the Word and I was talking about the words afferent and efferent? Yeah, that's the other And you one. were saying that you pronounce them really like clear. Efferent and afferent. Yeah, so yeah. you don't want to mistake them. <laughs> Yeah, that's really It's efferent, efferent. Yeah, you have to say efferent mm-hmm. to make sure you don't misunderstand <laughs> it. All right. Thanks, Kara. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, Bob, you're going to talk about Harlan Ellison because he uh, he died this week. And this is somebody, obviously, that we all know and love. But tell us about Harlan Ellison. All right, guys. So, yeah, this past week, famous science fiction author Harlan Ellison died in his sleep. He was 84. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. What do you say about Harlan Ellison? He was incredibly pro- prolific and influential. He'd probably yell at me and be quite mad at me for my opening line referring to him as a science fiction author. Uh, he preferred speculative fiction, uh, but he also wrote in a diversity of genres uh, far afield, such as crime fiction, horror, fantasy, TV scripts, critical reviews, etc., etc. Over 1,500 works, including books, reviews, essays, stories, and of course, novellas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so his influence was it was even more widespread than I had imagined. Uh, I mean, not only does he have his widely lauded gems that probably most of us have heard of, uh, Repent Harlequin, said the TikTok man from 65, or, or I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, oh. uh, 1967, winner of one of his eight Hugo award, awards. Mm-hmm. And I said oh, wow. eight. Um, the Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World, and A Boy and His Dog. Uh, yep. Very, very, very popular. A lot of people are aware of that one. But he also wrote scripts for The Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitch- Hitchcock Hour, The Outer Limits, Man from Uncle, and of course, Star Trek, uh, which I must mm. dwell on even just a little bit. He wrote the initial treatment for A City on the Edge of Forever, Ooh, which, wow. which is considered, considered one of the, the best. best Yes, considered one of the best classic Trek episodes. Uh, you look at any top 10, top 5, even top 3 Trek episodes for the classic series, and that's almost invariably in there. If you're even peripherally aware of that, that he wrote that, you're probably also aware that it was extremely controversial. Controversial. It was, uh, you know, he was very negative afterwards uh, about the episode because of uh, what happened. I mean, it, essentially, my take is that it was too expensive. He wrote what seems like a, a very a very interesting uh, little uh, script for the show um that I'm actually listening to it's on audible.com check it out I'm I'm listening to it now this is his first write up and I'm I'm just totally compelled I'm re- I just can't wait to get back to it I I wish I finished it before the show but so far I'm loving it but the problem was uh it was too expensive uh, it would have cost over $300,000 to film when their budget really was like maybe 150000 an episode. And they asked him to try to make it cheaper. And he's, and he basically didn't want to do it. He said stuff like, Hey, you know, put, make it all in special effects. So they really couldn't film it as he wrote it. Um, so Roddenberry had to do some writing, had to do some updating of the episode. Uh, I think DC Fontana also contributed to it and uh, they turned it into the episode that we all know and love to this day. Yeah. There was a lot of acrimony back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of claims that, that are, were made on both sides. So for whatever it is, the episode that was released is wonderful. So not only that, uh, Ellison wrote quite a bit about film and TV itself. Um, actually, his critical reviews are so well regarded that they're taught in college journal- journalism courses. Wow. So that, that tells you uh, one thing. But I'm sure a lot of people who know Ellison are like, all right, Bob, you know, what else you got to say about this guy? And Because you, you can't talk about Harlan Ellison's towering talent and influence without also mentioning his towering attitude, I, I would say, is one way, to, one way to put it. He would sometimes describe himself as bellicose, which is a really good word for him. He really was in your face when he was opinionated about something, and he was opinionated about 
pretty much everything. Um, he once told the LA Times, I go to bed angry every night and I get up angrier every morning. Wow. Thank God he was never exposed <laughs> okay. to gamma radiation, right? He would fight in a lot of different ways if he thought he was being screwed over. You I mean, really, if, if, if he thought you were screwing him over, watch out. He sued Hollywood Studios multiple times, especially if he thought people were stealing his ideas. Um, you know, I said anyone should be pissed off if your, your ideas are being stolen. So did you know that he sued James Cameron for his Terminator plotline of an android turned assassin? Didn't know that. Cameron uh, is known to have called him a parasite in this context, but Ellison's name was in the credits when the movie went to video. So that tells you, you know, take, mm. interpret that as you will. I think this, this quote best exemplifies his attitude. He said, my philosophy of life is that the meek shall inherit nothing but debasement, frustration, and ignoble deaths. So he, he lived his life that way, 110%. Um, so I'll end with my, my favorite Harlan Ellison quote that might be most appropriate for our show. He said, you are not entitled to your opinion. You are entitled to your informed opinion. No one is entitled to be ignorant. And I can't disagree with that one. Mm. Oh, yeah. That's such a good quote. I feel like I've heard it a million times, it's too. A, it's a great twist on, yeah. on that whole thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I love it. I, and it's so true. You know, everybody says everyone is entitled to, to their opinion. But, yeah, you know, put a little effort into your opinion and then it'll be more respected, I I think. Um, have you guys ever read Jeff D is Five? No, don't no. know that no. one. No. That's a, I read that many, many years ago. It's one of my favorite science fiction short stories. Really? Harlan Ellison. Yeah, it's really good. I don't want to say anything about it. Just read it. Jeff how D do you, is what, Five. Well, how do you spell Jeff D? J-E-F-F-T-Y. Okay. That's Jeff D is Five. Just read it. So it's a very short story. But it's yeah, just you know, I think it really shows his talent and his, um, you know, his creativity. You guys, any of you guys have? <laughs> a, I mean, other than City on the Edge of Forever, I think is why he's famous in our uh, to geeks, but in our realm. Yeah, but um, boy and his but, dog, I certainly know. Yeah, um, yeah. As a side note, I can't wait to to one day see Quentin Tarantino's take on Star Trek when he does oh his Star Trek movie. Oh, Mo, you, you know, know that they are in negotiation that. to do that, right? Is that right? Heard of it. I yes. heard Tarantino like, What would yep. that be like? An R-rated. so weird. R- it may be his last movie that he does. He's going to be doing 10 movies. And before he retires, at least that's his plan. And he, I think he wants his 10th movie to be the uh, the R-rated Star Trek movie. So we'll see if that well, comes uh, to fruition. But supposedly they've I, already had a meeting about it. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Those two styles just don't mesh. I think it could be kind of cool as like a high concept one-off. It's like, you know, it's just his interpretation of Star Trek. And if everybody looks sure. at it that way, it might be a cool study. But it could be yeah, Star but- Trek and not these, not Starfleet, right? You know what I mean? It could be a so some other part of that universe. You know, yeah, right. totally. That's, yeah, that's fine. I think somebody should, so, somebody should film or at least animate ellison's version of city on the edge of forever that we, it would be fast fascinating just as, as a part of star trek history you right know? right okay let's move on thanks bob jay there's an update from enceladus which is one of the you know the worlds in our solar system that we're paying really close attention to yeah is it legit to call it a world yeah it's a world oh absolutely moons are worlds yeah absolutely and yeah, it's funny i was like thinking about it and I'm, I just didn't. I felt more like I should be saying moon instead of world. But okay, body. Would you prefer body? Yeah, celestial body. That's nice. So Enceladus mm-hmm. is one of Saturn's moons, bodies, celestial bodies, worlds whose surface is <laughs> mo- the surface is mostly made out of ice. It is. It's made out of ice, and we know that beneath the ice, there's liquid water. 
And in, in order for there to be liquid water, it means that the core of Enceladus is warm enough to keep it from freezing solid, right? You'd think that, you know, what's heating up that planet? There, what, what's going on on that planet? It doesn't have an atmosphere. Or, no, you, you can't know. call it a planet. You can call it a moon. Oh, uh, I see. <laughs> right. You can call it a world yeah. and a moon and a but celestial body, but not a planet because right. it's not big enough to be a planet. Right. Not even a dwarf right. planet. Okay. F- okay. Fine. If you want to be that way, I'll, I'll, I won't use that word. <laughs> So scientists are wondering why the moon of this size isn't frozen solid. And a few ideas that they came up with were, you know, they're trying to explain things with the idea that that tidal forces are are, are in play here. And the tidal forces would push and pull the matter on the moon or mostly at its core. um, And this could potentially generate enough heat to keep the water liquid. And so after – Wait, Jay. Yeah. What do you mean mostly at at the core? The heat is coming from the planet's core. And that's where the tidal forces are generating the heat to, to liquefy the water that's that's intermingled with that part of the planet. The, that's correct. Because the, the core is rocky, and it, as they grind against each other, that friction generates the heat. Yeah, but remember, the, the more localized of space you're talking about, the smaller the parts, you know, the smaller piece of real estate you're talking about, the less difference the tidal forces make because it's the differential gravitational pull that that's doing it. So if you're talking about the tiny the tiny core, there's no, not going to be a I'm lot not talking of- about no, you're right, Bob. That's a good point to bring up. I'm not talking about a tiny core. I think it's large it's the the when you look at the entire the entire moon, we're talking about the largest piece of it, which is the centerpiece. Then there's a layer of water that's sitting on top of that. Okay. Right, yeah. <clears throat> so I'm not saying like if if you take a basketball and you take the size of a baseball in the middle of it, you're taking a much bigger chunk of the the middle okay. of the planet where there's all this friction going on stop saying planet world <laughs> yeah I'm, 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 i got confused See, you, there you started steve by calling it a world all right so it's, bas- <laughs> so it's basically the title the, the title forces on its interior that's heating the water above it that's correct it's actually the water's the water because one of the things they discovered is that their models fit a porous core right so the water's huh. probably filtering down into the core where it's getting really heated, and then that's oh, cool. what's that's what's causing the the geysers, you know, the water to blast out. So the liquid water that that exists in these porous rocks, at some point, the tidal forces would begin to generate enough heat to boil the water somewhere around ninety degrees Celsius, and then that that heated water would rise up to the icy surface and gush out of one of the cracks. And this is the geysers that we've seen. We've seen pictures of this in action. It's really cool. The water would be. The warmest, though, at the poles of Enceladus, which would also mean that the ice is at its thinnest there. And this is similar to the hydrothermal huh. vents that we see on Earth. So when you see like this incredibly hot water pouring out of a hydrothermal vent that's being heated by you know, raw – it could be in contact with raw magma. There could be a lot of things that are causing that, that, that level of heat. You know, The water is just moving up at a quick speed, moving away because it's so much hotter than the surrounding water. And the important part here is that the heat would allow – for chemical reactions to take place. So, and these would produce different types of minerals and material, and it also could produce hydrogen, which is important. The hydrothermal vents are filled with what? My- microbial life. These things, you know, are silly with microbial life on Earth. And the scientists are saying that, you know, if there's hydrogen there and they could be feeding on the hydrogen, there could be some type of microbial life that's, that's at these points where the water is being pushed up, where the, where the immense heat is. Yeah, and that would be chemosynthetic life, so it's not relying on the sun and photosynthesis, which is, makes this extra extra fascinating does, to yeah. me. Does it require some other catalyst, though? I mean, it, can life just simply come about with these conditions alone? Sure. 
Well, wait, but there's it's not just these conditions because you need to have the right temperatures, consistency in those temperatures, and you need to have the right type of you know material that that's there. You know, you need the right type of molecules that are being formed, which right. means that there has to be the things that are being turned into the molecules present as well. Mm-hmm. You know, this also explain, explains um, one of the rings of Saturn, by the way. The ice droplets that get shot up out of the geysers, uh, they created the E-ring on the planet. You guys ever hear of the E-ring? Yeah. yeah. So the planet yeah, yeah. captures those ice crystals and, turn, and, and it forms a ring over time. Yeah. So, so the, cool. So those plumes not only did that, but they, they are what Cassini flew through. At, yeah. And I believe it was um, – 30 miles or 42 kilometers was was Cassini at its closest to the surface of the moon. And when it flew through one of the plumes, they used a spectrometer. You know, they, they were reading molecules that were found in it. And this is water that literally just came out of the, the, the ice, you know, the ice shelf, you know, the ice that's surrounding the, the, outs- right. the outside of the moon. And these are the kind of molecules that we would think need to be present in order for, for basic life to form. And Enceladus is the only other planet that ha- that we're pretty sure has these types of molecules. Now, of course, Europa is another candidate, but Europa isn't as good as Enceladus because Europa would take, in order for us to find out for sure, in other words, Europa would take a lot of machinery and you know drilling and, and it would be a lot more expensive. Where Enceladus is just spitting this stuff out. Um, it might be easier to do an, more investigation on Enceladus to actually find if there's anything living over there. Now, just to keep in mind, like to keep it real and have a reality check, we're not saying that there's actually life there yet. We don't know. We're seeing indications that there possibly could be a chance, and it might be slim, that you know there could be something there that is is beyond normal molecules. And this new information means that we need to look closer at Enceladus, right? The key factors are there. We think that you know the environment is correct, but we're not saying that we found you know quote unquote alien life or you know inner solar system life on another another one of our celestial bodies but we do need to look deeper literally mm-hmm. yeah so the part of what's cool about this because previously they had seen small or um, organic molecules and then the concern was that the the water's getting heated too much and it's breaking down and it won't allow larger complex organic molecules to to survive but now that they've seen complex organic molecules in the in the plume, we know that that's not true. So that just basically moves us one step closer to knowing that the conditions which are conducive to life exist beneath the ice on Enceladus. And so it, it makes it even better candidate for there actually being life there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there is. The thing about Europa is that the ocean underneath the, uh, Europa has a lot more water. It actually has twice the water as on Earth. Did you know that's that? That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. Is that just because there's no land? Like it's, it's just, just deeper. water? It's just deeper. Yeah. yeah. We might be going to some of these moons to get water for future human habitation. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's no uh, life. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, well, yeah, like I if, mean, we're, if we're trying to colonize to the belt or whatever, any place, you know, we're going to – want to take water from out there, not from Earth. Right. Oh, that's for sure. I hope that this finally convinces people that this should be the, the priority in, in terms of explore, exploring the solar system. Let's get to Enceladus. Come on. Organic, long-chain organic molecules. Let's get our asses to Enceladus. I mean, that's I huge. Yeah. Probe, I mean, probe can, the can heck out Can you imagine finding microbial life on a, the, a moon of Saturn? That's, that would be the discovery of the millennia. Let's go there. 
series as well? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> and Enceladus oh. and Europa, I think, are scientifically you know, the most interesting. Right, and, and yeah, I think Enceladus be- just leapfrog Europa, I think. I would Maybe. 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 All right, that's cool. Well, thanks, Jay. Uh, let's. We're going to bring it down to Earth, which is a planet, <laughs> last time I checked. <laughs> and a body and a world. Yeah. So you know that I'm into birds because birds are awesome. They're very interesting. And some types of birds are extremely smart. The course of research over the last century has shown us that animals are smarter than we thought. You know, we're always discovering new things that they could do. So a a new study, a recent study, shows um, the really very interesting problem-solving capabilities of these are Caledonian crows. What they do is they will – they have an aviary set up just to study these crows. They will – capture crows for a few days, study them, and and then release them again into the wild. So they're not keeping them permanently. These are wild crows. So check this out. You can watch the video. It's really amazing. They basically built a vending machine. The crow did? That would No, the researchers did. The Uh. researchers, yeah. (laughs) Yes, the researchers built a vending machine for the crows. They're like, whoa. Thank you. (laughs) And then they, they taught the crows how to use it. The crows have to... They put a little piece of paper into the slot, and then a treat will come out. They, they, a little piece of meat will come out. Uh, and so the crows uh, have to learn to put the paper in the slot, but, but it only takes a certain size. Um, so first they teach them how to use it. They teach them – they give them the right size tokens to put. And then what they did is they just – gave them access to pieces of paper that were the wrong size, that were way too big. And what the crows did was they tore off a piece of paper and fashioned it into the right size and shape and then inserted that in the slot to get the tree. whiz. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Crows are – these were like just American crows? Those are Caledonian crows. This is in Caledonia. Caledonian crows. Yeah. Ah. Crows they are, are awesome. So cool. I love them. It's, you have to watch the video. It's just amazing to watch them do this. Now, th- this is the, there's a reason that the researchers use this you know paradigm to test the, the crow's problem solving because in the wild they have been observed fashioning little hooks out of twigs or or branches or whatever, and then using them to like poke grubs or to oh, fish yeah, into I've holes. Sure. So. The thinking is they must have the they have the hard wiring to fashion a tool from memory. Neat. And so that's what they're testing. Will the crows so the crows when they give them access to the vending machine and the paper, but there's no there's no template. There are no pieces of paper that are the right size. So the question was will the crows remember will they be able to fashion the correct tool purely from memory? Mm-hmm. And they did. They were able to just make the paper of the correct size without having to reference anything with no template. So they must have that wiring to remember. Like once they learn a tool, they can remember it well enough that later they can fashion the tool to the same specifications just from memory. So this research essentially confirmed that, you know, that hypothesis based on observing their wild behavior. Steve, is it that big of a deal to think that they could remember something, though? No, but I mean, this is you know just memory. No, but they remembered the like specific shape of a tool that they use for a specific purpose. So then the other question is: Is there a culture of tool use in the bird population? Right? Mm-hmm. Can young crows learn from older crows? 
And, and there's good evidence to say that they can. They can. They absolutely yeah. can. Uh, so there's, there's, there appears to be this not only that can they fashion tools from memory for a specific purpose, but they can pass that on to other crows. And so that creates the, the, the culture of tool use. So you combine this with the extreme problem solving that this family of birds, you know, crows and jays, has displayed in other research. And it really is amazing what they could do. I mean, they've learned to operate machines. If there's a treat at the end, I mean, they could learn to do like pull levers and pull pegs out of things. You know what I mean? Like multiple steps in order to mm-hmm. get the get the treat at the end. They can operate s- somewhat complex machinery. What about heavy uh, machinery? What do you think? Is that possible? <laughs> Only if they're not Maybe. on medication. Well, you could, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should have them look at global warming. You could put so, them into like a mech suit and they could walk around in it. <laughs> Oh boy. Little crow. <laughs> Crowzilla. So I, I don't know if you guys saw, but this um this season I was on Bill Nye Saves the World. I was one of the correspondents on yeah. the show. And one of the episodes that I got to do was about animal intelligence. And I went to Seattle to the University of Washington and met up with Dr. John Marsluff. And I don't know if you guys remember these studies that they did several years ago where they wore different masks. And they interacted with crows and with some of them they would feed them and with other others they would capture them to tag them. And they remembered the people's masks mm-hmm. for 20 years, long enough that Whoa. they knew Whoa. it was another cohort yeah, of, of oh, crows. Like Wait, they were how long does a crow it. live? I don't know. But I know that it was long enough that they were teaching a new cohort. Like you said, there's this culture where they kind of pass down this knowledge. And it's great. Like they would know because they would fly up to a nice face and like be nice to it and kind of ask for food. And they would like literally attack the mean faces. But it was really cool because I got to spend some time on this campus that's covered in crows and learn from a lot of different researchers in his lab. And one of them was all about funerary behavior. And these crows actually swoop and do all this crazy stuff when they see a dead crow. They think to warn other crows that this is an unsafe place. Mm-hmm. And it was just so cool learning about how incredibly intelligent these animals are. I just but had it also, so much fun. yeah, it is, it's amazing. But the other thing is, and this is, I think, what really has scientists interested is that mm-hmm. we have to broaden our concept of what it means to be intelligent. Yeah. And we shouldn't think of human intelligence as the template for intelligence. That's right. You know what I mean? That the animals can become intelligent in different ways. Totally. Based upon their environment, with their what they need to, to do. They Dolphins, could de- they, yeah, they could develop amazing abilities that um that count as intelligence, just not primate. It's not human intelligence. It's pro intelligence, whatever. It's yeah. just something different. Because it's adaptive for them. Like it makes yeah. sense for their worldview. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, my favorite was this little girl who has been since she was a kid, I think she's a teenager now, was feeding the crows in her backyard and they started to bring her gifts. Yeah, I've heard and of that. And she has Aww. this amazing collection of like shiny beads and little pieces of plastic and just little objects that the crow would come and leave at her back porch for her um kind of i don't know to thank her to ask tokens for more, of appreciation whatever, yeah whatever the case may be they had this really cool reciprocal relationship i wonder if you can get one to bring you a beer or something yeah maybe sure. yeah i would train it to be i've seen dogs that can do that that's really cool <laughs> but i wonder if like in a, in a hundred or a thousand years there's going to be a crow religion about the good and the bad masks you know like the, <laughs> yeah. the god and the devil <laughs> <laughs> it'll be in the crow scrolls 
Yeah. Well, and the funny thing was the caveman, it, it was a caveman mask to be dangerous. And then <laughs> I love this in a deliberate, this is from a New York Times article, in a deliberate gesture of civic generosity, a Dick Cheney mask was neutral. <laughs> <laughs> neutral. Oh, <that's> yeah. <laughs> So maybe there will be like the Dick Cheney and the caveman religion with these crows. Oh, let's hope not. <laughs> hey, do you guys know what tool the crow uses if that token gets stuck in the vending machine? The crowbar. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Come on, Evan. A little too obvious. <laughs> All right. got to set up, set yeah. up easy for you sometimes. Thanks. Right? Thank you, Evan. <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. Science fiction, it's not only for entertainment, but now it's a, literally, it's a window into crucial discussions about the world we live in. That's not news, Jay. We know that. Yeah. And because throughout the years, science fiction has taken a critical look at the, you know, the current state of technology and what the future state of technology would be. And it's also inspired technology to, to happen. It's true. And The Great Courses Plus, which you know we love, we talk about them all the time. We're always watching and listening to the different courses on The Great Courses Plus. They've got a brand new course that dives really deeply into this. And it's called, of course, Sci-Fi, P-H-I. Yeah, get it? Mm -hmm. Clever. Uh -huh. um, and science fiction as philosophy. And it's presented by Dr. David Kyle Johnson. It dives deep into what can be learned from Star Wars, The Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, my personal oh. favorite. It's a really good course to get started with if you haven't yet um, signed up for The Great Courses Plus. That's the uh, David Johnson. He, we did a panel at Nexus with him last year on science fiction and philosophy. Yeah, I think that so was guy that was two years ago. What he's talking about? Yeah, two years ago. We did yeah. it. Yeah, we did our thing on the philosophy of Star Wars and Star Trek, and he was awesome. awesome. Well, he wrote like books yeah. on it, so yeah, he was great. And remember, guys, you could watch or listen to this anytime, anywhere, from any device, your phone, laptop, TV, Terminator, heads-up display, whatever you got. <laughs> <laughs> We're so positive you're going to love The Great Courses Plus that they're giving SGU listeners a special limited-time offer, a full month of unlimited access for free. Whoa! But to get the free month, you must sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. So, Evan, I'm convinced yeah. I'm convinced yep. that the world is trying to kill me. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I think out of vengeance because I said that I live in a safe part of the world. Mm -hmm. So immediately afterwards, it sent <laughs> tornadoes to every city that I frequent. Like just in case so – I wanted to make sure it wouldn't miss me. So it sent one to where I live, where Jay lives, where Bob lives. Every place <laughs> where I might be found, it sent a yeah. tornado which I managed to survive. Now I understand that there's a super volcano under my feet. What is up with that? Yeah, but how could that be? Because oh, New boy. England is so quiet and tranquil and peaceful and stable, right? No, it even sent an earthquake after me when I was on the can. People yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> Our planet or world or body has it out for you, Steve. I know. The novellas, myself, we grew up in Connecticut, in New England. There are some things that get beaten to your head really early in life growing up as a kid in New England. And one of them is that it's not very geologically active compared to other places on the planet. And, you know, we even we even do get our earthquakes and stuff. But look at these numbers I looked up. And this was just in the last few days. These are typical earthquakes. And earthquakes happen all the time. For, for our region of 
of the country and the planet. Here are magnitudes. These are just in the last couple of days. A 1.6 they measured. They measured a, a 0.9 magnitude, 2.8. In fact, I looked back three years. I saw one reading of 4.0, and everything else was below that, right? So folks in the ring of fire must be laughing at us with pathetic numbers like that, right? And, well, maybe not laughing, but, you know, by comparison, you, you get you get the... You get the idea. Oh, here's a cool, here's a cool factoid I found. Does anyone else hate the word factoid? By the way, I like yeah, it. Yeah, and it also well, has an opposite uh, meaning yeah, from how we use it. Yeah, it mean, it's supposed to mean like uh, something that sounds true but isn't. It's a yeah, it's been that's what a real factoid into, is. Yeah. <laughs> into being a fact. So I'll, I'll solve. <laughs> no, I like I use fact. factoid to mean a disconnected little fact, meaning it's not in the context of understanding any. You know, discipline of science is just a little disconnected little fact. Yeah, it's like trivia. I use yeah. it that way too. But apparently, the original definition was that it was something that sounded true but actually isn't true. Mm-hmm. Well, this yeah. is not kind of but that's wrong yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. You know, you remember the Richter scale, right? Mm-hmm. Everything used to sort of be measured by the Richter scale as far as earthquake intensity. Uh, but that doesn't provide really accurate estimates for large magnitude earthquakes and some other non Californian based <laughs> earthquakes. We use, uh, or scientists use, the momentum magnitude scale, which is abbreviated M and a W. But you think of it as in terms of energy released by explosives. So a magnitude one, okay, magnitude one measurement, it releases as much energy as blowing up six ounces of TNT. A magnitude eight earthquake releases as much energy as detonating six million tons of TNT. Jesus. Now that's impressive. It also gives you an idea. So six megatons. Damn. There's a logarithmic sort of chart as far as what the difference between magnitude one and magnitude eight is. They're worlds, worlds apart. So can you even detect? I mean, I guess you can detect a magnitude one, but you, but like people couldn't feel that. No, no. no. Typically, typically, if it's too fiber left, it's too. It's just too small. You can't. You can't sense it. But you know, obviously, we're in New England, and this is what we get most of the time. So therefore, we think that we are perfectly immune to these sorts of things. But as Steve alluded to, that's all changing because U.S. geologists were surprised to find a huge magma blob under Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire. And it's on the verge of exploding any day now. We're all going to be blown into the stratosphere. No, not that part. (laughs) No, the findings, though, were recently published in the journal Geology, and they do shake up the foundations of perceptions on this part of the country and that it might not be as stable as we think. They used an array of seismic sensors. This was a team of researchers at Rutgers University and Yale University. They made this surprising discovery taking measurements over the last 10 years of activity in this in the northeastern part of the country, specifically New England. The lead author is Vadim Levin. He's a geophysicist and professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Scientists at Rutgers University. His team studied data from EarthScope, a National Science Foundation program that deploys hundreds of geophysical instruments across the U.S. It's a temporary network of seismic sensors, and it's made its way around the country since 2007. The array has picked up readings for small earthquakes and observed the motions of seismic waves in various regions enabling geologists to visualize the features of our rocks deep below our feet in the planet. Now, the study has helped identify a molten blob is being centered under Vermont with parts of western New Hampshire and Massachusetts as well. And he says, this is Levin, the upwelling we detected is like a hot air balloon, and we infer that something is rising up through the deeper part of our planet under New England. It's not Yellowstone National Park-like, okay, so you got to kind of put the... Super volcano with an asterisk, sort of. But he says it's a distant relative in the sense that something relatively small 
no more than a couple hundred miles across is actually happening. And it's challenging what they've understood. They have to go back and now sort of rethink about what is happening, geologically speaking, below our feet. And just to clarify, despite my humor at the beginning, there's no chance that a volcano is going to open up in Connecticut anytime soon. No, no time soon. In fact, they said millions, more likely tens of millions of years, if this thing were even to come straight up to the surface. There's a lot of time and a lot of different things can happen in the meantime. So right. it's never it's never erupted before. No. And it's not really a super volcano, as I was saying. The super volcano implies a volcanic center that has an eruption magnitude of eight on the volcano explosivity index, the VEI. Bob, it's called the volcano explosivity index. I love, I love it. that. That is so cool. It is amazing that we can tell what's going on inside the earth at all. You know what I mean? Oh gosh, that we've figured that out, and it's evol- and the technology has evolved over over many yeah. many decades. Oh yeah, yeah the, the reading is. instruments that we have, you know, they continuously get better, and we can you know see what's going on underground more clearly, and then we can make more accurate predictions. Yeah, we know what the core you know is like of the planet because of these seismic mm-hmm. waves that we can read and interpret. So, Kara, just last week we brought up the marshmallow test, and now there's a new wrinkle on the marshmallow test. What's that about? Yeah. What did we talk about last week? We mentioned it because of how it's easy to interpret a study one way, but it's really another factor. It's yes. this was, yes, Marshmallow yes, yes. test was interpreted as being about uh, self-control, but it's also just as much about trust. Absolutely. Especially when you look at some of the cultural um, differences. And that's sort of a part of the conversation that we'll be having today. But I want to open it up to a new study that was – it was published – in um, developmental psychology uh, just like last week. And it's cohort effects in children's delay of gratification. So what they were really looking at, these researchers, who, by the way, the last author on the study, I love this, is Walter Michel himself, the guy who first did this in the 60s. This is a study that compared different cohorts, different uh, kids from different eras, and how they did on the marshmallow test. So they analyzed original data from the 1960s. They compared it to later data from the 1980s. And then they compared it to data from the 2000s. And they age matched the groups between three and five years of age. And what do you guys think would happen? Steve, you can't answer because I know you've already read this. Everybody else, what do you think would happen? Do you think that kids are getting better or worse at the marshmallow test? Better. You think better. Why do you think so? Uh, because there's uh, getting used to other sort of uh, – the quantity of distractions, I'll say, has a role of some sort. Interesting. So you don't think that that kind of distractibility, that ability or that, that kind of YouTube nation sort of vibe would contribute – contribute to kids wanting their cake and eating it as fast as possible? Um, yeah, in a counterintuitive way, that is correct, Kara. That is what I think. What about you, Jay? Based on, I mean, you've got little littles at home. You've got kids in this co- cohort, right? Three to five. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would think, I would think that, same. you know, we're talking about millennials and, and, you know, the street talk is that they have shorter attention spans. You know, they grew up in a, in a digital age and they're using their devices and all that. But I, you know, I, I too am on the fence because I'm not sure about kids in this age group because we limit them. Uh, we limit their screen time and things like that. So we're not really letting them fall into that. But I am dying to hear what happened well, with the stuff. I'll add this too. I'm not sure the marshmallows, the reward that it used to be in itself, right? Because ah, kids have other, other candy and other things at their disposal. A marshmallow is, is just one of a million different treats now. 
All right. So when they looked at the 60s, they looked at the 80s, and they looked at the 2000s, they found that three to five-year-olds in the 2000s waited two minutes longer on average than children in the 60s did, and about a minute longer on average than children in the 80s. So they're seeing Mm -hmm. a trend where that kind of ability to wait is getting longer and longer. I knew it. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing is the researchers don't know why, of course. Um, They postulate that maybe it's because the ability for abstract thinking is um, improving. Kids are being able to pay attention, plan, prioritize better because more youngsters are going to preschool, more youngsters are using digital technology, and somehow there may be some sort of either learning effect or, you know, something's happening from that. Um, yeah. Oh boy. And so we are seeing an improvement, but it's really hard to – I mean that's that's a pure speculation. Like they, they don't know why because that's not what they're studying um, and that's where we start to to have that conversation. The good news is is that since Walter Michelle's early work in the 60s and since a lot of the kind of – like you were saying, Steve, like the overreaching explanations. You know, a lot of people out of the 60s research wanted to say that the marshmallow test meant – that the kids who could wait longer for a marshmallow at the age of three to five were going to have better self-control later in life, which was going to lead to better outcomes. And what they're finding is that that doesn't really hold water. Like early evidence pointed to that. But then, of course, we got a little more woke as scientists and we decided (laughs) to maybe not just test – you know, young, white, middle-class kids. And we started to realize that there's all sorts of cultural implications here. There's all sorts of things that we didn't really look into. Like, for example, I found this great study from last year where they looked at the children of farmers in Cameroon and they blew European and American kids out of the water with the marshmallow test, which is interesting and counterintuitive because a lot of studies show that when you look at lower SES children in the U.S. versus their higher SES counterparts, they actually do worse on the marshmallow test. And it's not – they don't think, as we were talking about, I guess, last week, they don't think that it's because kids are – have, you know – worse um, willpower. They think it's because kids in a lower SES community are going to be less likely to trust that the adult is going to come back with the food. And and being more food insecure means that they'd rather take, you know, X amount now instead of waiting for double that amount later. Yeah, that's really interesting because a place like Cameroon, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we food is is so ubiquitous here and and omnipresent. Mm -hmm. It's always at, at, at a hand's reach. In other countries, that's not the case. I mean, yeah, and so that's why it was really interesting to the researchers when they found out that they were so much better at this task than American and European kids and or than German and European kids. And I think that they found or sorry, geez, German and American kids. And I think that, uh, you know, that can really speak to a lot of cultural influence, how these kids are raised, you know, what what kind of values are bestowed upon them by their parents. And so it's very hard to paint the actual construct of this test with a broad brush. And that's something that I think is really important in psychology that we always have to remember. Psychology research can be very different than biological research with maybe genetically modified organisms. Like if we're looking at cloned mice and we're looking at the effect of something on mouse X versus mouse Y, it's very different than when we do psychology research, obviously. And part of the reason is because in psychology, we often come up with 
constructs, things that we want to measure, and then we develop tools to measure those constructs. But there's not a good way. I mean, through some psychometric gymnastics, we start to learn better how well we're measuring the construct itself. But there's no it's like language, right? Language is a symbol for a concept. We use it to try and explain concepts that just are, like the the essence of a table. We explain with the word table, and we might use other words to talk about the wood grain or the legs or the height or the depth or the, you know, how sturdy or how flimsy it is. But the table just is. And, you know, there's some argument about our mental concept of things as coming from language as well. But it's kind of like that with psychological testing oftentimes is that the construct just is, and then we're trying to develop tools to tap into it, and they don't always tap into it perfectly. So the marshmallow test probably taps into much more than just delayed gratification and somebody's mm-hmm. ability to withhold uh, pleasure. It, it, there's so much more that it's testing than that. And it's probably culturally defined as well. Do children at ages three to five have a, have a perception of guilt? Yes, mm-hmm. they do. Yeah. And justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. they do. yeah, they do. That, that comes in. That comes in pretty early. So also, Kara, yeah. The, just to put things into more perspective, in the 2000s, 60% of the, of the preschoolers waited the full 10 minutes. Yeah. In the that's 1960s, a big it was only 30%. It went from 30% and it was, and it was only 40% in the 80s, right? Yeah, 40, it went 30 yes, to 40, 40 to 60. to 60. That's huge. So that's it's huge. not just that the average wait time increased, but the number of kids who could wait the full amount of time. Who kind yeah, of when you think about it, won the experiment. That, yeah. That's an absorption wall at the ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Would they have waited twenty minutes? So that yeah. two minutes is very deceiving. It could be a lot more if it was if it were more open ended, right? Like how long would they wait? But so I think that you know thirty percent to sixty percent may be more telling. But the researchers also pointed out that they they may not be seeing a difference in life outcomes because there just isn't that much of a difference anymore. You know, mm-hmm. the, like there's there isn't as much variability in how the kids are performing on the test. Most are are passing it, you know, completely, and so that may be watering down, looking for a benefit, if you will, or, or a difference in life outcome of having the quote unquote ability to wait, you know, the ten minutes. So Absolutely. it's complicated. There's a ceiling. Like there's you've got to make sure that you have fine grain resolution when you do these tests, and when everybody is rocking the test, it and might be yeah, time you, to start to redevelop the way you yeah. test it. Yeah. And they and they point out that this data is all in white middle class kids, and so you can't mm-hmm. extrapolate mm-hmm. beyond that. You cannot. So it's a very narrow demographic as well. So there's a lot more research that needs to be done to really as old as this, as this paradigm is the marshmallow test. Uh, Evan, you brought up a really interesting point, and I and I, I hadn't thought about it. Maybe marshmallows aren't that big a deal anymore. You know, maybe it's not yeah. as much of a maybe of marshmallows a are suck that they're like an old people. It's like giving kids prunes or something. Well, you'd have to compare it. <laughs> you have to compare mean, it Steve? to I don't know, but maybe you have to compare it to other peanut butter cup. Well, that's other what Bob. I was going to say to see if that variable makes a difference. Bob, how, would you have would you have survived the Peter? peanut butter cup test at that age. I don't F- know if you no. were big into peanut butter at, at age five, but... I was out of the womb loving peanut butter, man. <laughs> right. I would have failed. So then you have these these people like Bob who, you know, would have succumbed to the weakness. But I also brought up guilt, and I wonder if the children at some point feel like they're somehow failing the adult if they don't listen to the instructions and not touch the marshmallow. Yes. 
I mean, is yeah. this is this another manifestation of the helicopter parenting style? Because parenting styles have definitely evolved since the 60s. So it's easy to believe that parenting style may be playing a role here as well. A although massive it, role. In, yeah. one, in what way, who knows? It might not necessarily be self-control. But I also, I have no problem believing that kids are just neurologically more developed now than they were 50 years ago. How, though, um, Steve? Well, first of all, People are getting smarter. If you, This is the mm-hmm. Forer effect. If you do standardized testing over the last 60, 70, 80 years, people are, are gaining, what is it, three IQ points a decade? Yeah, it's something. It's it's. It, there's a very specific linear trend yes. um, that we're seeing. And they say some of it has to do with the fact that the tests themselves, people do them and they get better at them. But there is an amount of variance that's kind of un- uh, described. Yeah. So is that from alien influence? I, well, I, I do think <laughs> I do think that kids today are smarter, you know, and, and I think that, but I, and I also don't think that the short attention span thing is is correct. I don't mm-hmm. think that younger generations have a shorter attention span. I think they are more sophisticated in their ability to consume information, and like. It's very common for my daughters to be consuming three types of media at the same time. That's yeah. the, what they're used to. It, you know, like, yeah, but at what cost? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Okay. At what cost? <laughs> Steve, you know I the just people love that, that expression for its own sake. Steve, you know the, the people that are creating all this content? Yeah. Do you think we could trust those bastards? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, for example, like my, my daughter will be working on something on her computer on yep. one screen, and then the, the left half of her screen is a YouTube video of people playing a video game that yeah. she's watching. And yeah. there's a TV in the background, or she has her headphones on. So there's like at least three different types of media going on at the same she time. She might be texting she, too, right? Yeah, she categorizes like, yeah, that's background entertainment. Like, that's what I watch in the background when I'm doing something else. I wouldn't just sit there and look at that, though. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think they're just very sophisticated in the way that they consume media. And I think, you know, for what it's worth, I think that's probably largely responsible for the fast pace of things. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't interpret fast paced as short attention span. It is part, I think it does relate more to what we've discussed previously in that there's been an evolution, a cultural evolution where consumers of movies or whatever, of media, are learning to speak the language along with the producers of that, the editors. And so we are communicating with each other in a much more efficient way. I, I do find myself getting bored more easily when I'm when I'm trying to consume God, yes. something which is inefficient, yeah. not which is not the same thing as slow. I can watch a very slow movie if, yeah, it's, if it's masterful. An, if it's masterful, right? If it's an enjoyable experience, I can luxuriate in a slow movie. Like I loved 2001. Cube. No, no. Well, yes, <laughs> yeah, right? No, but the recent version. Yeah, I love 2001. How dare but, you? Don't say that about my movie. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. What was the the new Blade the Runner? New one. Yeah. 2049. 2049. Yeah, the Blade Runner 2049. Loved it. Loved it. Many people thought it was a very slow movie, but that's a fine. Mm. But that's different than 
inefficient. Yeah. Like you're, oh, I feel sure. like oh, yeah, yeah. you're wasting my time. I very quickly get to that point. When I'm watching movies and things on Amazon, if I put my cursor in the right place, it'll bring up bios of the actors and things yeah. pertaining to this particular scene that they were in. They had this uh, impromptu thing. It's very cool stuff, but. I didn't think that yeah. that was possible, you know, even just 20 years ago. And there it is. It's instant information we're, we're, about what you're watching. We're information junkies. And, yeah. and we're spoiled because now we a question crops up. Well, what, what other movie was in? You, you just look it up. It's like, oh, yep. he was, you know, not too long ago, we would just not know. We'd never, not, never know There's the answer. There's a thousand question. point Jeopardy question to 20 yeah. years ago. Now it's and nothing. Now it's nothing. And that's like my hypothesis is kind of that we're also seeing – an evolution of the way that we teach at the, especially at the higher levels, which is less about just learning a bunch of facts and figures and just having them hang out in your brain because there's no reason for it. Yes. We don't have to go to the library and look through the card catalog. We're much more interested in the process by which we learn things, the process by which we look things up. Everything we always talk about on the show, right? How do I think? How do I best not fall victim to my own cognitive biases? I'd much rather learn that than learn, you know, just a bunch of facts and stuff that I can just Google. Why would yeah. I waste mental architecture on that? Oh, exactly. And students anymore, uh, also, they don't want to go to class and sit in a lecture because it's it's a waste of their time. It is. It's like, just give me the video, the audio, the whatever, and I will consume it in virtual time on my mm -hmm. own time in the background while I'm doing something else. And then if I'm going, if you're going to get me out to a, a class, it's got to be a workshop. It's got to be interactive. It's a like laboratory, a, you know, it's something. Yeah, or, or yeah, a, a laboratory section. Yeah. Or so that's yeah. we're actually retooling medical school for students to, so that you know, there's no more lectures. It's all workshops. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is good. I think it's very it's more good. efficient. It's, yeah. It's, we, and we got to get more efficient because there's more information Absolutely. to pass on. You know? Oh, my gosh. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. Guys, even though you're hearing this after July 4th, you could still celebrate July 4th with savings. Right, Kara? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can save money by buying a Lisa mattress because they're giving our listeners a July 4th discount. Yay. And of course, the Lisa is a really socially responsible company as well. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses so far and counting. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's together great. with the Arbor Day Foundation, they plant one tree for every mattress they sell. And they're committed to planting one million trees by 2025. Whoa. Wow. And guys, Lisa has leveraged 30 plus years of experience and hundreds of hours of testing to develop their perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. All right, so we got my son a Lisa full mattress, which means it's more than big enough for he and I to sleep on it. And I've now slept in bed with him three different nights. And I'm telling you that, like, this mattress blows away the other mattress that I'm on. I don't want to say, you know, what mattress I'm sleeping on, but there is a huge difference between a mattress I bought five years ago and their technology. So hurry up, guys. The Lisa July 4th mattress sale won't last forever. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash skeptics today. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash skeptics for $160 off. All right, guys. Let's get back to the show. All right, Jay. It's Who's That Noisy time. Okay. Last week, I played this noisy. What is it? 
It's a bit grindy, but it's also a bit watery. Yeah. Yep, that's, that's good. Good observation. It's like a fluid, fluid, solid situation. It almost sounds like popcorn kernels in a popping machine before they pop, but without all the noise of the fan of the machine itself. Sure. Yeah, I have a uh, popcorn machine that just has a hot plate and an arm, and the arm sweeps over the popcorn and just stirs it up. Interesting. It, it does, it does kind of have like almost like a bacon frying sound to it. How dis- That's like the most disappointing bacon of all time. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I love about this segment's fun because you get – People coming in and they're you know they don't know what it is, and they they're just like okay, what does that sound like? You know, there's like listening pareidolia almost where they they are hearing something else and they're sure it's that you know. So Ty Johnson wrote in said, "Listen weekly for a couple of years." With that said, while it's not correct, I will use my first guess as boiling gravel for this week's <laughs> noisy. Look and at my, that rocks and liquid. Yeah, I'm with mm. you, man. Sure, but my question <laughs> is: Do we ever need to boil gravel? I mean, do geologists even boil gravel? I don't know. I don't Maybe know. you want it uh, to be antimicrobial because you're going to use it in like a fish tank or something, and you need to make sure that the balance of the micro organisms is correct then might you gra- not Maybe. boil gravel i'm asking i don't i know. don't know i don't either <laughs> but that seems like a, a plausible time when you would bruce bidwell bridwell this is like a superhero name i am bruce bridwell uh he said i'm going with pop rocks in his daughter's mouth Aww. oh pop his rocks. own daughter he's like somehow you got a recording of my own daughter no no because i said last week the listener did this with his 12 year old daughter oh gotcha pop rocks are so <laughs> weird oh man i love them so much have you guys ever had the chocolate bars that have pop rocks in them? yes no oh, i got it oh no it's actually wow. pretty cool so good it's like it firecracker bars but it yeah. doesn't overtake it you know it's, it's something else subtle yeah. so richard smith wrote in sounds like a rain stick um not bad mm. Yeah, yeah. I remember those. Interesting. So this one I thought was notable. This was sent in by Matt Trzinski. Matt Trzinski. There we go. He said it's either a Galtron board, also known as a Quincunx, or the fake, which samples a Galtron board. All right. I didn't know what a Galtron board is. I looked it up. A Galtron board is a thing that tests the randomness. So you drop, like, marbles at the top. And they bounce on the pegs as they go down. And, you know, oh, you can like, never... like Plinko. Plinko, yeah. yes. Thank yeah. you. That's a Galtron board. So thanks. That was cool, Matt. I didn't know that that had a name. Um, and that is an interesting guess and close to the sound, but not, not on the nose. The winner for last week named Daniel. Daniel said, hey, Jay, I think this week's Noisy is a rock polisher. And he's absolutely right. Hey. This is a rock polisher. So if you don't know what one of these is, it's a machine. It kind of looks like a very little cement mixer but you load the rocks in and the uh the capsule that the rocks are in is on a, on a slope you know and you put some liquid in there you know you could put water in but a lot of times they put like a polishing liquid in there and then you you shut seal tight the uh the trap door and then you just plug it in turn it on and that tumbler spins and spins and spins you could do it for a week um and when you pull the stones out they're going to be polished like these you know, like these translucent, tra- semi-translucent stones that you buy in like a craft store or something? Mm-hmm. That's how they're made. So all the rough edges are, are worn away and the rocks are, are perfectly smooth and they have a little bit of a, a sheen to them. And it's beautiful. It's a really cool project to do with kids. I'm actually going to be doing it with my son soon. I'm going to get one of these. Yeah, I want to get one. I have a bunch of rocks I collected in Morocco because I'm a nerd and my pockets were just <laughs> full of rocks while I was walking around all the time. I want to polish them. That would be fun. 
Yeah, and if you you know if you don't want to buy a new one, you could look up and use one on eBay. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm sure there's a lot of used ones out there because you know it's not like you're doing this for ten years. You might do it like three or four times with your kids, and then you, you know you lose interest. But it is a, a fun <laughs> thing to do. Now we have a new noisy sent in by Luke Goodsell, and the noisy is. go what is that wow. i don't know but whatever it is it's gone i know it sounded it started sounding like a circular saw cutting into something that it didn't want to be cut but then it ended like a siren yeah it really when you don't know what it is it has a, a almost like a spaceship sound to it yeah. Yeah. something really powerful about it mm-hmm. yeah it started off very much like that's a saw that's mm-hmm. a saw yeah, cutting yeah. into stone or something Something like that's that. flying sparks everywhere. But the end was interesting. The end uh-huh. yeah, made me rethink Re- that. Remember when, re- remember when Batman was starting up his car? He'd be like, like Batman, atomic batteries to, to power. What, what was that quote yeah. when he would say? Atomic batteries to power, oh. turbines to speed. Yes, atomic batteries to power. So if you guys think you know what this week's noisy is, or if you heard something cool this week, send it to me at WTN at theskepticsguy.org. All right. Thanks, Jay. A couple emails this week. First is a correction. Uh, Kara, you incorrectly stated that Japan drives on the right side, of the, or that only British colonies yeah. drive on the left side of the road. But there was a few countries There's that like are not British colonies, yeah, yeah, including Japan. That I that, think the point I was trying to make is that most country, but you're right, I said all countries. So yeah, correction accepted. So uh, it's interesting though. But so currently, you want to know the actual numbers? I do. Yeah. So right hand traffic is 163 countries. And territories and seventy six are left hand traffic. Most of wow. that those seventy six used to be British colonies, but there's a few that weren't, like Cyprus, Japan, Indonesia. And, you said one thirty and seventy six. One sixty three. Oh, one sixty three versus seventy six. I'm looking at the percentage. So yeah, so it's more than more than uh, two. It's about two thirds, right? Yeah, so right. that's like thirty thirty two percent drive on the other side of the road. But yeah. I wonder in terms of like land mass or in terms of like population, what that number would be. Because they're mostly smaller countries, no? Well, Australia, yeah. Yeah, New Zealand. Sorry, population I don't know. wise. Interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Cause I don't, the coolest experience, I think I've told you guys about this before, but I remember when I went from Hong Kong to China and I drove in, I went from Hong Kong up to Dongguan with the uh, – First hanging out with the Hong Kong skeptics, which was freaking awesome, and then mm-hmm. hanging out with the Dongguan skeptics, which is freaking awesome. <laughs> and the the car that I rode in was a Hong Kong car, so it had the steering column on the right, and it was driving on the left side of the road. And then as we drove into China, all of a sudden I realized we were just on what I consider the right side of the road, the correct side of the road, because that's what I'm used to, right? So we were just all of a sudden on the left side of the road. Uh, I'm sorry, on the right side of the road, but his steering column was still wrong. And I was like, this guy is so talented. <laughs> and apparently that's not uncommon when you just mm-hmm. drive in between borders a lot. Yeah, there, so there are some countries where there's an actual land border between a left-hand traffic versus right-hand traffic. And they have to have a transition. You know, They have to figure out how to transition people to switch to the other side of the road. <laughs> it's they so have a light weird. or they have something, some way of doing that. Yeah, land mass, it's mostly right-hand traffic. Population is, well, probably you know, mainly because of China. Mm-hmm. And you know a lot of the uh, the right hand traffic. There's a lot of French influence there because France 
early on, was an early adopter of right-hand traffic. Interesting. It's not really clear exactly why America went right-hand traffic, but there's so many different things that influence it. Part of it, so like one of the stories is, is that carriage drivers would, because you're right-handed, so you have the horsewhip in your right hand, so you want to sit on the left side of the carriage so that your right hand has access to the horses, and and you want to be able to see where your wheels are, so you want people passing you on the left so you could make sure you're not going to hit them in the wheels because you're sitting mm. on the left. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the so, funny thing is here in the States, the postal drivers have opposite cars, don't they? Yeah, because they have to get access to the mailboxes. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yep. So that's like our version of seeing that here. Because, of course, we're a massive island that's like separated from everything else. So we don't have any cars driving over from an opposite um, yeah. driver's column. Yeah. But and apparently there's no safety issue. Yeah. There, there's, there's like one is not inherently safer than the other. No, I've seen the, people who have converted cars here who drive on the right yeah. side of their car. They just have to still drive on the right side of the road, um, which is weird. But I love how one person who rode in to like correct, you know, was like, all your cars come from Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, auto automakers have to make cars for left-hand traffic versus right-hand traffic they sure do. destinations. I mean, it definitely would, you know, in our globalized world, it would make sense to just for the whole world just to pick a side and yep. have everybody use the same yep. side. Make it metric. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make a deal with the rest of the world. We will go 100% metric if the whole world goes 100% right-handed traffic. Ooh, that's an interesting deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of enthusiasm there. <laughs> Let's hold Did you know that tra- the headlights, a car's headlights, are also right-hand traffic, left-hand traffic specific. Mm-hmm. So they're made to illuminate the road in front of you more and blind the drivers. You know, on your coming own, on coming left, yeah. on coming traffic less. So that that also is not just where the wheel is; it's also the headlights. And all over England, it's like printed on the street, or at least in London and bigger cities. There's, it says like on the street, like look which way is it that we're not used to looking? Look right. Yeah, you have to look. Yeah, you have to look yeah. Look, yeah, look right. Because we're used to looking left, so it's left. like look right. Like don't walk out into <laughs> yeah. traffic. Oh, it's a huge. It's a huge problem. You're used yeah. to looking the other way. Yeah, but I I went to uh, Bermuda and I had to drive a uh, like a scooter on the other side of the road, and like you get used to it in like an hour. All right, we got another email. This one comes from Brian. Bertolio from Chicago, and Brian writes, uh, prior to a recent NovoCure presentation, I thought, as you say, that non-ionizing radiation is safe. Perhaps heating tissue and energy is absorbed, not adsorbed, but absorbed, but with no <laughs> significant biological effects as chemical DNA bonds cannot be broken. Thus, my initial reaction to tumor treating fields was skepticism. The science seems sound, however, and frequencies near the range of AM radios in Europe, differential GPS and navigation transmissions can affect cell division and show efficacy in treating brain tumors. Has the evidence of safety included these effects? And is it a matter of dose that makes environmental EM radiation safe, uh, even next to an AM radio station antenna? And then he gives a link to NovoCure. Um, so yeah, so we're talking about the fact that there isn't much, if any, risk from non-ionizing radiation, like from cell phones, because it's not powerful enough to break bonds and therefore shouldn't cause mutations. You know that increases the risk for cancer. But could there be a theoretical risk from non-ionizing radiation? So some people have argued categorically, no, there's no risk from non-ionizing radiation because it's too low power. My science-based medicine colleagues and I have said, well, you know, we wouldn't go that far. We would say that the theoretical risk is low, but we never rule out that there's some unknown 
biological effect, even from the, you know the lower energy fields. So our position is probably safe, but it's still you still need to do the clinical studies. You know that's generally the science-based medicine approach. You know plausibility is important, but clinical trials are, are the ultimate arbiter, right? Um, if we if we did find that there really was a risk from say cell phones, then we'd want to then backtrack and figure out what the mechanism is. Uh, for example, okay. So, but he brings up Novacure. Novacure is using non-ionizing radiation, so-called tumor tumor treating fields, in order to treat cancers. It's been studied in glioblastoma multiforme, for example, which is a type of brain tumor. It's the worst kind of brain tumor. And here's the thing, is that using the effectiveness of these tumor treating fields as a premise is premature. Uh, so you can't say, well, there must be a mechanism because these things definitely work because we don't know if they definitely work. The data is actually preliminary and you shouldn't be shocked that sitting in a presentation promoting Novacure may have overstated the right. state of the evidence. Yep. So I found some reviews, one specifically saying basically TT fields, where does all the skepticism come from? So it's basically saying why if the with this positive trial – why hasn't this become the standard of care? And then laying out all the reasons, the legitimate reasons to be skeptical of this data. Um, and there's, there are many of them, and these will be familiar to listeners of, of the show, you know, because we talk about these a lot. One thing is that the, the main trial showing an effect was not placebo controlled. It was based on historical controls. Uh, that's a huge problem because there is a very well established clinical trial effect, you know, if just being in a clinical trial means you're going to get better care than people not being in a clinical trial. People in clinical trials tend to do better than historical controls. Uh, and so that really wasn't ruled out as a substantial effect. It was open label and not sham controlled. So that's a huge hole in the evidence right there. So I've, And the fact that there isn't really a known mechanism means, okay, so you've got Weak evidence, although encouraging, not gold standard evidence, with an unknown mechanism, it just wasn't enough to make this established as, all right, let's start doing this. So, all right, there was also problems with the the study population itself. So this was a population. So during the enrollment phase of the trial, because, you know, the life expectancy with people with glioblastoma is fairly short that people essentially either died or got they progressed too much to enter the trial. So the people who were left were people who weren't progressing. See the problem there? So the trial mm. is basically there was a selection bias yeah. because of that wait period that and only the long the, the relatively stable patients were getting into the trial. Don't they call that a mortality effect, even if it's not based on people actually dying and falling out? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So it wasn't really a good – you can't really generalize from that sample. It was a biased sample because, you know, only the people who were were living longer to begin with were getting into the trial itself. And maybe that's enough to account for this alleged effect. You you throw in a little bit of people in clinical trials tend to do better anyway, and then there you go. You know, you have this – three-month survival improvement statistically in this trial. Not very convincing. 
Uh, and so here we are, you know, it's, so it's not convincing enough that you can use it as a premise to say, well, definitely there has to be some mechanism because of this, the results of this trial. It's like, no, this is a weak trial with an unknown mechanism. These things tend not to pan out, but we basically, we need further research, right? That's, we need to, we need to plug these holes, uh, in the research before we can use the clinical outcomes as a premise to then backtrack on the mechanism. Does that make sense? Mm. All right, but thanks for writing that question, Brian from Chicago. 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 Where they watch the bears, the bears and the bulls. And have a bratwurst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a hilarious <laughs> SNL skit. That was one of their best. Yeah. All right, guys, it's time for science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to use their skeptical radar to tell me which one is the fake. Last week, sniffing out the fake depended on your knowledge of amalgam, what metals are in amalgam, and whether or not they are ferromagnetic. So I like it when there's a very specific bit of science knowledge that you could use to decide if something is true or not. What are you saying, Steve? Me too. Well, that's always my goal, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I can only oh, go with yeah. whatever the news items are out there. I can't make up the news, right? All right. Sure you a can. It's easy. Sample, right? <laughs> make up all sorts of stuff. <laughs> well, I can make up one of them. I can't make up the real ones. Right. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Three regular news items. Item number one. A new study finds that at 105 years old, the risk of dying levels off with no further increase in death risk in death rate with age. Item number two, researchers find that as people make progress in solving problems, they lower the bar for what constitutes a problem, obscuring the progress. And item number three, a new analysis of Medicare spending finds that 30% is used on patients with a four-week mortality rate of greater than 50%. So 30% is spent of Medicare spending is on people who are going to be dead within a month anyway, or if they have a 50% chance of dying within a month. Jay, I don't think you've gone first in a while. A new study finds that the 105 years old, uh, the risk of dying levels off. Yes, I would agree with this study and encourage them to make it the number go up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, I've done some reading on, you know, you know I'm in, into this type of stuff on uh, life extension. And um, this, this kind of goes with what I've read. I mean, that, you know, there's a, there are times during a, a person's life when certain risks go up. But, you know, when, it, when you're looking at people that are living into this zone, I, I would believe this, right? Because we're saying that, you know, 120 years is, a, is about as old as we think somebody could get, but there aren't any major risks after you break. I forget, I forget what it is, but I, I, do, I do agree with this one. I could see that. Lots of articles about this I've read. Researchers find that people who make progress in solving problems uh, lower the bar for what constitutes a problem, obscuring the progress. So basically, if you say whatever is a problem and then you take steps to reduce the problem, then you decide that lesser and lesser instances of X constitute a problem. You define down what a problem is so that it doesn't look like you're making progress. Okay. I don't experience this myself. So there's my anecdote. I'm not sure. This one is this one's kind of weird. You know, I know that there's lots of weird things like this that happen with human psychology, but I don't, I don't have anything to base an opinion on with that. Um, let me just move on to the last one. See here. Uh, the 
Analysis of Medicare spending finds that 30% is used on patients with a four-week mortality rate of less than 50%. Greater than 50%. Absolutely. Greater than 50%. (laughs) It's going to the right, that little error. I know. I know it. I just screwed up. I can admit that now. And it's broken across the line. I need need to go to therapy over this. Um, (laughs) Medicare spending, they find that 30% is used on patients... Okay, so yeah, I get this one, and I, I, I would think the number's a lot more than that. I would think that Medicare spending is spending way more than 30% on people who have a, a greater than 50% mortality rate eh, in four weeks. I think this one's the fiction. Because you think it's higher? I think it's higher, yes. Uh, okay, Bob? Yeah, I disagree with Jay on that. Um, that. That kind of makes sense. I know we spend a lot at the end, you know, for end-of-life care. That's kind of like hopeless. Um, I would hope to, I would like to think that it wouldn't be quite a, that bad thinking that, you know, Hey, you got, you like, you have a, only a month left to live. Let's, let's reconsider this, the, all this money that we're spending, but that, that just seems right to me. Let's see the second one, the solving problem one that to me, that just fits in what I know about human psychology. That makes a lot of sense as well. Um, the first one though, I've got a little bit of a problem with 105 years old. I do, I do know that risk of dying le- levels off as you get older, but I just happen to think. I think it happens earlier than 105. I think that's I think that's too old for that to happen. I think it's I think it's a little earlier um, than 105. You know, well before 100. I think that that starts happening. Uh, so I'll say that that one's fiction. Okay, Kara. Uh, at 105 years, so I have to admit, I read the headline but did not read the article, and those always get you, don't they? Yeah. When you mm-hmm. think you know, but uh, you have no worst. idea. Um, I know. That's, so, that's Steve's sweet spot for screwing uh-huh, you. <laughs> I know. At 105 years old, the risk of dying levels off. Part of what bugs me about both the headlines that I saw and also the way it's written here, and I guess this is a conversation to be had later, is that it levels off in the sense that you have no more risk at 108 versus 109 versus – but there's still like a cap. And after that, nobody lives. So then it drops off completely. (laughs) So that's like the thing that I think people see this as like there's no reason. We could live forever. We couldn't live forever. And I'm like, no, that's still not true. But I I think this one might be science just because I – That's probably why it's fiction. Whatever. Let's move on. (laughs) Researchers find that as people make progress in solving problems, they lower the bar for what constitutes – of course. This seems like the type of mental gymnastics that anybody would do. Um, It's how we get that positive effect afterward, like that checking off the box or fixing the the problem situation. Of course, we're going to make the resistance level seem lower cognitively. So – I agree with the two of you on that. So the Medicare spending one, it's interesting because, Jay, I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like it seems likely that we would spend a lot more money than 30%. But 30% of the entire Medicare spending is high. Now, granted, Medicare we often think of as for being for like more elderly people who are having health issues. But as much as I know that there is good research to show that like, you know, a lot of physicians do things – I don't know if you've ever read Atul Gawanda's book. He writes about this a lot, just like doing things to try and save lives even when they probably can't be saved. So it's harmful. 
But I also think that money trumps everything. And ultimately, I don't think that we're going to be dumping a lot of money into trying to – it's like triage, right? Like battlefield triage. Don't waste the leftover morphine on somebody who's probably only got a few minutes left anyway. Or don't waste the life-saving treatments. Just give them morphine. And so unfortunately, right. I, I think that we probably – not unfortunately. Fortunately, from a financial perspective, I think the number's probably lower. I think that a third of all money going towards people who we know have a 50% or more chance of dying within the next month seems like wasteful. And I think that we're going to calculate based on that waste and we're just going to put them into palliative care at that point, which I don't think is as expensive as surgery and things like that. So I guess I'm going to go with with um, Jay on this, but for the opposite reason. Sorry, Bob. It's all right. And Evan. <laughs> well, you should be apologizing to me, too, if you think I about know, that. right? <laughs> Sorry, both of you. <laughs> uh, real quick, you guys hit on a lot of the points I think I, I thought of as well. 105 years old. I think that one is going to be science. As Kara said, people making progress and solving problems, they lower the bar, and there goes your, there goes your progress. Uh, makes total sense. I don't see how that couldn't be science. That kind of leaves the Medicare one. And the, I suppose the only question there about this fiction, is it worse or is it not as worse? It depends how many people are on Medicare. Are more people going on Medicare earlier for more reasons? If that's the case, it'll skew more towards Kara's position. But if not, it'll be Jay's. Either way, I think that one's the fiction. Hmm. All right. So you all agree on the middle one. Uh, researchers find that as people make progress in solving problems, they lower the bar for what constitutes a problem, obscuring the progress. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Yay. Right. Yeah. I, and this is, again, this is one I just wanted to talk about, you know, but I didn't think it was going to be that challenging because it's, a, yeah, it's just a cognitive bias. So it's very easy to buy. It's basically a new cognitive bias that they, that they documented uh, with this study. And they actually gave people different kinds of of problems, some like not even social, like in one, they just were sorting blue dots, but there was a a spectrum of colors. So it, 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 they had to decide like what counts as blue. And as they reduced the frequency of the blue dots, people started counting a wider range of colors as blue. They started counting purple as blue. Wow. Right. So, Meaning that, you know, there's a, the, the bias there, I guess, is that they're just looking, when you're looking for something, you will define your category so that you find it, you know? They, then they also did it with, uh, they did another study where they looked at faces and, you know, is a face threatening or not threatening? And then as they reduced the number of threatening faces, people started to categorize more neutral faces as threatening uh, in order to keep the numbers relatively stable. Uh, but then they did one that was more the most relevant to you know the the notion of solving problems. Um, they looked at they uh, re- reviewing a study to see if there was anything unethical being done in the study, and then as they reduced the number of studies that had clear ethical problems, the reviewers started counting more and more innocuous behavior as if it were unethical, which is something that I think probably many people have experienced. Like, you know what I mean? Like, have you ever had any kind of review of your work and you and you think, okay, well, it's their job to find problems, so they're going to find problems, even if they're tiny problems. You know what I mean? They're never going to say there's nothing wrong. They're, you know what I mean? Have you guys ever been in that situation where you feel mm-hmm. like, ah, eh, they're just, yeah. they're finding problems because it's their job to find problems, yep. you know? Totally. Yep. 
So the idea is, is there is context dependent definition of what constitutes a problem. And the thing is, it's actually appropriate in some settings, but not appropriate in other settings. And what we, but unfortunately, we might over apply it when it's not appropriate. So the example they gave as an appropriate setting is if you're triaging patients in an ER in an emergency room, what constitutes an emergency is absolutely dependent on who is in that waiting room. You know what I mean? It, the, if you have a bunch of really, like, you know, acutely traumatic on death's door people, that's what's urgent. And the, and the person with the broken arm, that's relatively not urgent. But if the person with the broken arm is the sickest person in your waiting room, that suddenly becomes a very urgent problem, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, so there's some, some situations in which a relative criteria is appropriate, uh, but uh, in many situations, it's not. And, but, but we're biased towards changing the definition to keep instance, the incidence rates in some kind of sweet spot that we feel whatever that, that, that we are looking for. So, and I've caught myself doing this a lot of times as well. Like, for example, there are times where like I'm cleaning up a picture, right? Like you have a, you have a bitmap and you're cleaning up a mess and you clean up the big messes. And then when you're done with that, like you start to progressively define down how much yeah, of a deviation right. you consider worthy of being fixed. <laughs> yep. Right. It's like you just keep going smaller and smaller and smaller. You, you keep fixing smaller and smaller problems. And then you look at it. It's like, oh, now this little thing, which wasn't bothering me before. Now it is bothering me. <laughs> um, you got, if you guys have ever done anything like that. I but, do it all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah, so then they, they obviously they, they, they discuss this in the context of social problems. Like, let's take a big one. What constitutes racism or sexism? Oh, yeah. And obviously, 50 years ago, what was happening, you know, there was a, there was sexism and racism going on in, in America 50, 60, 70 years ago. That was massive by comparison to what's happening today. Uh, and we've, you know, largely fixed the, those big problems like systemic institutionalized racism right uh right. and then right then we define you know we look for smaller and smaller instances or, or or problems that constitute racism but the question is is that a how appropriate is that you know what i mean that doesn't necessarily mean that it's inappropriate to do that it could be more like the er where it's like okay yeah of course we fix the big problems first it doesn't mean the smaller problems aren't worth fixing but at the right. same time at the same time, it's important not to lose perspective. The problem, they say, is that people could then forget that we've solved these big problems. You or know, you it, have the opposite problem. This is what I see all the time is that people think that because we it's not like the 1940s anymore, that somehow there is no racism. Well, right. yeah, that's right. right. So there's a, that's, the, that's the relative privation mm -hmm. logical fallacy. Right. That's why I say it doesn't mean that there isn't a problem, but it doesn't mean that we've made no progress. There's yeah. a more nuanced view in the right. middle. It's like we've made progress, but there's still a problem. But, but, yeah. but we have these dual cognitive biases where people tend yep. to go one way or the other. They tend to think yeah. it, we haven't done anything or – We've solved all the problems, and it's like it's like a peak, you know, where they tend to fall to one side or the other, and the nuanced position in the in the middle is psychologically unstable. But that's where the reality is, you know. So that's also I, that may relate to people's desire for simplicity. You know, we tend to like to think we think in false dichotomies and all or none kind of things, and the sort of nuanced views are higher energy. They take more thinking and more cognitive energy, you know. 
Steve, you know what that reminds me of? What's that? A science fiction story you read sometime? No, no. Good guess, though. Um, no, you, are, you, you are wrong. Best that reminds first guess, me Steve. of It's a science fiction podcast, not something I – no. Um, it reminds me of when I say to people like, oh, I, I, I want to lose some weight. And they're like, are you serious? I mean that, that seems pretty applicable. It's the same, it's the same idea, it's, I, I think. It's like – you know, I want to, you know, I want to lose five pounds. Like, you don't have to lose any weight. Well, I think I do. And then I get into arguments with people about it. It's like, what the hell? I can't want to lose five pounds. I think it also has to do with this, like, cultural kind of situation of my, my shrink has to tell me this a lot because I'll have some sort of issue in my life. And then I'll really denig- like I'll minimize it because I'll be like, but at least I'm food secure. And at least, you know, because there are people in other parts of the country who are dealing with this and that and the other. And he's like, yeah, but you can't constantly compare your problems to other people's problems. Yeah. Because in doing so, you're minimizing your problems. Yeah, exactly. But again, I think it's that you want to be somewhere in the middle. You You want to have perspective. Yeah, it's nice that we're not starving, you know, and I appreciate that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that I don't have any problems at all. And, and yeah. things that deserve attention, because, you know, I'm, I'm not living in a war torn country or whatever with horrific human rights violations. All right, let's move on. Let's go to number three, a new analysis of Medicare spending Uh-oh. finds that 30% is used on patients with a four-week mortality rate of greater than 50%. Jay, Kara, I never think this one is a fixture, though Jay thinks the number should be higher. Kara thinks the number should be lower. Evan, you're in the lower group as well? Or? I, I suppose so, because maybe more people are, have access to Medicare earlier in life. That would pull the number down. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Kara, you said something interesting. You assumed that we know that people have a greater than 50% mortality rate oh, when crap. the money is spent, but that doesn't say that, does it? Oh, no. This is retrospective. If you look back, you know, because the thing is, we don't know who's going to die and who isn't going to die. We spend, we put people in the ICU who maybe it, it might be very likely that they're going to die, but we don't know who ahead of time. You know, that, so we spend yeah, money on everybody. Do, we do have a good idea of knowing, like especially with cancer patients and things like that, based on other statistical data, whether or not their mortality um, is going to be quite long or, or short. Yeah, I mean, so it's that's not the like, question is how is it going to shake out? You know, so is it the same? Is it higher or lower? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And this one is the fiction it is the fiction. Yes. But, what's the but is it higher though? or lower? Is yeah. it higher or lower? It's lower. It's much lower. Ah, yes. there you go. <laughs> Only 5% of Medicare spending was on patients with a greater than 50% mortality rate for their hospital stay. Wow. So, yeah, I, I increased it to 30% and I gave it the four-week thing, but it was basically just 5%. So, oh, was that is, not within is, a month? Was there it was, another? No, it was. Indication? I think it, it was just for the for the treatment that they were getting. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, so the, and that's a lot lower than people thought. It's a lot lower, and the, and the the reason is that idea that we don't know who's going to die and who isn't going to die, and so it's uh, we're spending money on people who are very sick, obviously, and the sicker you are, the more expensive your care is going to be. So it makes sense that we're spending money on people who are going to die because, by definition, right, we're spending money on sick people. Right, we're going to spend more money on people who are sicker, and the sicker you are, the more likely you are to die. So of course, we're spending a lot of money on people who are going to die soon. But it turns out it's, that's not as much of a problem as we thought it was. It well, was because only- also aren't physicians pretty good at knowing when somebody is in a palliative situation? Well, that's that's the, that's a good question. That would that would need further research to flesh yeah. out that that question. And yeah, I think my experience is well, yes, you know, we're we're 
we talk to families and if it really is futile, the goal is mm-hmm. always to move to palliative care, comfort only, you know, to start to, start to pull back. Yeah, and some people have DNRs. Like, there's a lot of yeah. people are. I guess that's a difference between being sick and being sick and old. But here's the other thing: is that there are exceptions. There are cases where we don't come to an understanding with the family, and they push for high end interventions when we do think is futile. But those cases tend to stick out in our memory. But if you yeah, think about it statistically, about that. yeah, it's it's the mm-hmm. it's the the man bites dog. You know, story, right? So we, we remember it. It sticks out. It's another cognitive bias. But when you really think about it, most patients, most families, most patients, they take our advice. You know, when we say it's, yeah, it's really no point. We want to pull back. They're okay with that. It's only occasional that we get into, you know, to conflict where we think it's, it's not likely that, you know, that, that further intervention is going to be useful, but the family wants to push ahead anyway because they're just not emotionally ready to give up or whatever it yeah. is. Um, all right. All of that means that a new study finds that at 105 years old, the risk of dying levels off with no further increase in death rate with age is science, which is which was surprising. So mm-hmm. after about age 15, uh, there is a pretty linear relationship between age and mortality, the annual risk of death. Uh, in the it it starts out high for infants and then it drops until you're in the five to 14 year old group. And then it climbs from there Hmm. um, till like it says greater than 84, right? The graph I'm looking at stops at greater than 84. Well, if you keep going, it it keeps going up in the nineties, the nineties really dramatic increase in the risk of death. But, and then it starts to level off. And by 105, it was in the, in the, in the study, which was in Italians, you know, just because there's a, there's a population of really old people in Italy then, so I don't know if it's generalizable outside of this population, but but whatever. But for this population at 105, it pretty much leveled off. At that age, at 105, there was a there's a 50 percent chance of dying in in a year. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the same each but that, year. After. Yeah, but that it was 50 percent at 105, at 106, at 109, at 110. It was still at 100. It was still a fifty percent chance that leveled off the chance of but dying. That's what's the oldest person? One seventeen. Yeah, it's usually some one twenty two. Well, so there's, as of our statistics, there's a one hundred percent chance of dying after one twenty two. Right. That's what they're basing this on is actual that, well, data. Not really? So. Yeah. It seems that way, but I would. Yeah, I that's would, they're just basing this on death data. They're not extrapolating on. Well, but I mean, the thing is, if you if you if you do the fifty percent mortality rate per year. Mm-hmm. Then you then you do that statistically. You're going to get you know you're going to get that curve that, that asymptotic curve down to zero. But because there's a finite number of people, eventually it's going to you're going to hit that wall. You know, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like something it's magic still, happens mean, in one twenty two. It doesn't mean that it isn't asymptotic though, because there's just there's just a limited limited number of data points. Yeah, one twenty two. So depending on how you look at the, the statistics, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's an absolute limit. And that's the discussion that was happening in the article, and I think this is where they're getting a little speculative, and the, you know, the, the headlines I think went too far, saying that there isn't necessarily, therefore, an upper limit to human lifespan, um, and I don't know that that's necessarily true. 
Yeah, you know, because be- it's just like you can take this one of two ways. You can either say on the extreme end like me, well, you can't live past 122 because it's never happened. Yeah. Or you can say on the other extreme end because you have a 50 percent chance that could just go on forever and ever yeah, and ever. If you just, like, but it's somewhere many, in between. <laughs> how many times are you going to flip heads in a row? Maybe somebody yeah. might flip 100 heads in a row. You know, who knows? But so far, nobody ever has. And that's but, and, really, and I think, important. That we, that we, know, of, that we is, know of. That we know of. Even if my point is, even if the even if the mortality rate stayed at fifty percent per, per year, it could still be the case that nobody ever has because the odds are very low. I mean, you exactly. already you're rolling that's seventeen heads in a row. Exactly, you know? and I don't want mm-hmm. somebody to read this and interpret it as, man, if I make it past one hundred and five, I'm immortal. Yeah, I'm immortal. <laughs> you know I mean? Still a fifty percent mortality rate per year. It just <laughs> yeah. doesn't get higher. Still. Can yeah. you imagine flipping a coin every year? Yep. Exactly. Live or die. That sucks, kind of. <laughs> Nothing <better. laughs> It's a coin flip. All right, Evan, give me a quote. Yes, here we go. The kitchen's a laboratory, and everything that happens there has to do with science. It's biology, chemistry, physics. Yes, there's history. Yes, there's artistry. Yes to all that. But what happened there, what actually happens to the food, is all science. You want to you guess who said that? Who? Bourdain? Alton Brown. Oh, yay. Alton cool. Brown. The scientist in the kitchen. Yep. Yep. Primarily, uh, I know him from Good Eats, um, mm-hmm. but he's got a, tons of projects. Iron Chef America, he's all over the Food Channel, Food Networks, and does live performances, stage shows. He's also a musician, motorcycle enthusiast, pilot, lots of different things. And he loves bringing and mentioning about what happens with the science of cooking. And I know, I've noticed that mm-hmm. throughout his career. So good for him. That he's doing that. Yeah, it's awesome. It is a lot of, it's all chemistry, right? It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me on this Sunday. You got sure, it, Steve. Man. Thank you, Steve. I, I miss it. it. I, I skipped church for this, so I hope, hope yeah. you appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 